Hello, this is John Curry. I have the pleasure today of sitting here with Dr. Charles Nam in his nice home, having a glass of wine with him. Uh, Charlie is a retired professor from Florida State University. And the reason we're doing this interview is I'm interviewing people that I call the experts, Charlie. And I've known you since 1976. And over the years, you've done a lot of work because of your training and education dealing with demographics, sociology, retirement issues, longevity. And we've had some fantastic conversations over the years. And I just wanted to share that with people. So first of all, I want to thank you for allowing me to sit with you and do this in your nice home and enjoy this nice glass of wine. My pleasure. For, take a moment, please, and just share with people who might be listening to this your background. How you got started at Florida State University, just how you got interested in the things that you've studied and shared with me over the years about longevity. Well, I was uh, a world in, in World War II, combat in Europe, uh, when I was 18 years old. But you uh, went in the Army at 17, though, didn't you? Yes. <laughs> yes. I remember those stories about that. And... Uh, I was one of the younger people who fought in World War II. And uh, when I got out of the Army and applied to go to college, I was told that uh, it's difficult to admit you because all of the older GIs that had come out of service were filling up the spaces in the universities, and we didn't have room for the younger guys. And um, uh, I went to New York University at the time I was living, my parents were in the suburbs of uh, New York. And um, I asked them what it would take to get into the university. Uh, and my grades were good, my qualifications were okay. And they said, well, uh, you'll have to wait until we have a slot for you. And I said, there must be some way to, to get in. And they said, would you consider starting in the night school. And I said, well, uh, will that get me into the day school? And they said, if you did well in the night school, we would move you to the day school. So I said, fine. And my first semester at New York University, I was in the night school. Had to commute in from the, on the, on the railroad to uh, New York University. Attended courses at night. And at the end of the term, they said, okay, we'll put you in the day session. And um, I finished the rest of the program in three years and got my bachelor's degree in applied statistics. Uh, statistics was always an interest of mine in a popular way. I, I collected statistics about baseball players and things of that sort. I didn't even know there was a field like that. <laughs> and at the time... <clears throat> Uh, there really weren't statistics departments in more than two or three universities in the country. And uh, New York University had what they called an applied statistics program where you took courses in uh, mathematics, economics, business, sociology, wherever they were concerns about statistics. And I uh, benefited greatly from that program. When I finished it, uh, I applied for a government, federal government job and uh, was hired at the U.S. Census Bureau, which has just 
taken the 1950 census of population and uh, needed some young professionals to help them develop the, the data, both processing and po analyzing the data. And so I went to Washington and uh, spent a few years uh, working on the, uh, the 1950 census. And um, the people I was working for, uh, my supervisors, were people with PhDs who um, had already established themselves in the social science professions. And uh, I learned from them what it took to be a professional in, in this field. And uh, I got very attracted to, to it. And so I, I developed my skills there. There came a time in 1953 when they said they no longer could retain me because the census period of census analysis was completed and they would have to let me go. Uh, well, they had let many more go before me, but uh, I was let go as well. And so uh, through various means, I went back to complete a master's degree and a PhD at the University of North Carolina. And uh, at that point, the Census Bureau said, why don't you come back and you can be a branch chief for us for the 1960 census. And I did that and spent a few years there. Uh, but I wasn't really satisfied with my professional work there. Government work uh, requires you to, to do what the government needs to have done. And I'm a little more innovative than that. <laughs> and I didn't have an opportunity to be... So, some people that know you very well would say that innovative is not the right word, maybe a bit of a maverick. <laughs> <laughs> a bit of a maverick, perhaps. Uh, and so I started looking around in terms of um, university employment. And uh, that's what brought me to Florida State University. Uh, you have to understand that at that time, uh, in the early 1960s, uh, the population in the United States and in the world was growing at the most rapid rate it had ever experienced. I did not realize that. So 1960s was the... Was in the, the early 1960s, the highest rate of population growth in the world and in the United States as well. And that made the federal government very sensitive to the need for understanding what was happening with the population. And they built programs to support research, and to support uh, graduate education. And so when Florida State University hired me, I said to the chairman of the sociology department, let's go and get some of these uh, fellowships that they're offering from the federal government. And we got four of them that came with my introduction to Florida State University. And that's started uh, development of a program uh, which still exists today uh, on uh, population research uh, at Florida State University. In fact, we're, uh, this year we'll celebrate our 50th anniversary as a center for population studies. Wow. All right, let's hit the pause button for a second. You just covered a lot of material. So yeah. here, here's what's going through my mind. Yeah. I'm hearing a young man, 17 years old, goes into the Army, 18 years old officially. You go to war. If I recall correctly from 
what you shared with me on our honor flight trip together, you were in the infantry, I believe. So you saw combat. You made it back. You wanted to better yourself. And because of the GI Bill, you were able to go to college. Sure. But yet you were thrown a hurdle in front of you. Well, you can't come during the daytime. You have to come at night. So instead of giving up and saying, well, yeah, that doesn't fit me, I'm going to walk away, you paid the price and did what you had to do, ride the subway and get to work, at, go to school at night. True. There's a lesson there, and the lesson is that if you truly want something, you have to pay the price to get it. That's right. And that's true whether it be in your field or in my field in the world of business. You have a choice in life. You, know, you can endure a little bit of hardship and work hard and work through it, or you can give in and walk away. You didn't give in. You, you pursued that. Yes. Then you didn't. everything wasn't perfect, so you end up going to Washington, D.C. to work with the Census Bureau. Then they get rid of you because projects are over. Right. So you leave, but I'm curious, you didn't say how you got to North Carolina. Why North Carolina? What happened there? Well, when the Census Bureau let me go, I was actually unemployed for two months because, um, you know, Dwight Eisenhower had become president just shortly before. And I admired him greatly because he was our leader in Europe during the war. Right. And, um, but the fact was he had promised to cut back on federal employment. And I was a victim. <laughs> uh, you didn't like him so much, then, uh, did you? <laughs> but I, I uh, kept looking. So it was hard to get other kinds of jobs in the federal government. And I was thinking, well, I'll look around in the private sector when one of these chance events occurred um, in um, Montgomery, Alabama, where the Maxwell Air Force Base is located. Mm -hmm. I've been there because I was in the Air Force. Okay. <clears throat> well, uh, somebody representing Maxwell Air Force Base came to the Census Bureau just before I left saying we are developing a demographic unit at Maxwell Air Force Base. And we're looking for an employee who can do some analysis of data we have. And my then uh, supervisor said, we have the perfect person for you. Uh, they interviewed me, and I got the job. And I went down to Montgomery, Alabama. I was there for 10 months working with them, got a lot of good experience. And they had uh, several people as consultants that came down there. One of them was a professor from North Carolina. And uh, I met him. I guess he was impressed with me. And uh, he said, uh, why don't you go on to graduate school? And I said, well, I just don't know. You know. He said, if you come to Chapel Hill, I'll give you a, re a graduate research assistantship. Mm. And you can work with me. So I went and took the graduate record examination, passed it adequately, and that's what took me to North Carolina. So, again, just dealing with life, before we turn the recorder on, you shared with me the conversation you had this morning with a gentleman who's 95. Would you share with our listeners how old you are? Well, uh, you're thinking about the point of chance. Yes. Yes, I think chance played role in a several points here. Uh, chance that the job at Maxwell Air Force Base was created, right? Uh, which took me down there. 
chance that the professor from North Carolina happened to be a consultant at the time I was there, and I met him, and the chance that we managed to connect, and he offered me the assistantship. But can we also agree that while chance was involved, that if you were not prepared, that chance probably would not have been offered? Because I I remember reading somewhere as a young man, I think I was in the Air Force, I went in the Air Force at uh, 17, my dad had to sign for me. But I seem to remember, being while I was in the Air Force, that luck is where preparation and opportunity meet. Yes. So chance could be substituted for the word luck. So you have to be prepared so that when that chance can tap you on the shoulder, that you're ready. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think my uh, training at New York University for my undergraduate degree prepared me well for the various tasks I did both at the Census Bureau and at Maxwell Air Force Base. And um, so uh, when we had meetings there that involved the consultants, I was called on from time to time to make comments. And I guess my comments, based on my experiences uh, in in education, uh, impressed them enough to say, here's a fellow who can do something in the future. Very good. All right, let's go back to Florida State now. So you're at Florida State University. So you come in, what was your initial role at Florida State? Well, because uh, population studies was getting to be a a national interest in this country, um, uh, Florida State was interested in developing a population studies specialty. And that was the main reason they hired me. They were counting on me to develop a program. Oh, Uh, so you were hired to come in and start that? To start that. Okay. Now, I did not realize that. I knew that you were head of that department for a long time, but I did not realize you started yeah. it. I was, I was, in, I was uh, <clears throat> recruited to do exactly that. Mm-hmm. And um, I mentioned the, the fellowships we got from uh, the federal government. And uh, at the time, we only had one undergraduate and one graduate course in population studies. Take a moment and explain how a fellowship works so people could understand that. Well, uh, we had uh, funding from uh, National Institutes of Health uh, specifying uh, people who would uh, get master's and doctoral uh, training in population studies, and uh, they specified the amount of the fellowship. Uh, We would then recruit students who would fit into those slots. Okay. But uh, at the time, uh, a lot of gr- very able graduate students did not have funding for their graduate education. So this was considered uh, a plum yes. for them. And uh, we, had, we had the plum. Very good. So you were able to pick to, the best, to pick the best ones. Right. right. Very good. Over the years, when we've had our personal conversations, You've talked about longevity, talked about life expectancy. How much did you get involved in that because of your work in sociology and understanding and studying population? How did you get an interest in that? Well, um, someone said that in my early career in the demographic field, I was interested in the study of fertility, of childbearing, uh, and then as time went on, 
I seem to shift to an interest in migration. Hmm. Uh, but then as I got older, and I guess my own concerns oriented me more to life expectancy yes. and uh, what the risks of mortality were. And so uh, most of my research in, in the last 20 years of my professional career uh, was focused on uh, health and life expectancy. And I've done quite a bit of research in that area, which includes um, the effects of various factors like cigarette smoking um, uh, and other behaviors that uh, restrict uh, life expectancy. Very good. I know in my planning, I tell people of the seven mistakes that we most people make, number one is underestimating life expectancy. My oldest client is now 100 years old. She turned 100 on February 9th. A lot of clients are in their 90s, even more in their 80s, scale back to 70s and 60s. I have some clients who come to me because of their parents or grandparents referring them to me that are 22, 25 years old. That's unusual because I say, I'm 64. Are you sure you want to work with me? I can get you a younger associate. But because of the relationship, we work together. But it's amazing what I'm experiencing understanding and studying life expectancy myself. And I'm definitely not a scientist like you are, but over the years I've learned that the more I can learn about the subject of longevity, health, nutrition, wellness in general, and help clients understand it, the better prepared they are for retirement. Because it's not just about money. You know, sometimes people think, well, I'll go to John, get help on the retirement income side. Well, yeah, that's okay. But if you don't plan for a long life, you could run out of money. On the other hand, somebody could be like my grandfather. He retired, unfortunately died four and a half years later. And my dad retired and lived 23 years in retirement. So what's it going to be? Short life expectancy in retirement or a long one? And we don't really know, do we? Uh, the research has shown that uh, people don't die prematurely after retirement. Uh, that the, there are many other factors that have to do with their life expectancy. And I think, you know, partly it's genetics, mm -hmm. what genes you've inherited from your parents, and part of it is your own behavior and the risks you take uh, in life. And uh, you have to weigh both of those things as, uh, as you think about life expectancy. In my case... Um, my mother lived to 83, and I've already passed that. And my father lived to 94, and I haven't reached that yet. And I'm sort of in the middle between those two life expectancies. Well, you would expect that the son of two people who live to old age would also live to old age. However, my oldest sister died at 69, so she didn't even make the life expectancy of, of my mother. So there are a lot of factors that contribute to the uh, to what life expectancy will be. Uh, I'm very fortunate that I'm approaching 91 and in reasonably good health. Um, and I, as you indicated earlier, that I'm very conscious of my diet, uh, my exercise, uh, my uh, general behavior. I don't smoke. I drink very moderately, uh, and uh, I think that's to, been to my benefit. 
No doubt, no doubt. What does your research show as far as the impact? Do we have the ability with behavior modification to maybe beat up the genes and or, or is it the way we're born the way it is? Yeah. <laughs> well, you inherit your genes. There's nothing much you can do about that. Right. And so what you have to do is take that as a given. Okay. And then consider how you behave yourself uh, to improve your life expectancy. Um, I, think, I think people have underrated the importance of um, physical activity and the mental activity because it isn't just a matter of having your body be healthy, you have to have your mind be healthy as well. Right. And, um, you know, dementia has become a big problem in our society at older ages. And uh, you can postpone dementia or avoid it uh, by using your mind very well as well as taking care of your body. Research has shown that these things do affect the risks of uh, getting some form of dementia. I, I do a lot of reading in that area, and I'm convinced that the things that I'm doing from the standpoint of doing martial arts, staying active physically, mentally, will help me from the standpoint of hopefully delaying or postponing those type things, dementia, yes. Alzheimer's. Uh, but the studies I've read, and they're definitely not always scientific studies, have indicated that the more we can do things like doing puzzles, uh, anything like dance, martial arts, where you have to think things through, make your mind work, make the brain work, that it's good for you. So you're, you're simply confirming that. Yeah, I think so. <clears throat> Exercise can be mental as well as physical. Yes, yeah. yes. I had the pleasure in December of going to San Diego for a program called Unbeatable Mind Retreat. It's put on by a retired Navy SEAL commander. And he talks about the five mountains to self-mastery. Number one is physical, then mental, emotional, intuition, and spirit. His premise is that if you're not physically fit, then you're not going to be able to transport yourself around and do the things you need to do. But if you get physically active, your mind gets involved mentally, as you said a moment ago. If you are physically and mentally in control, you have better control of your emotions. You're not so quick to be angered, lose control. And then the intuition is following the gut. He said that it's been proven by scientists there's more nerves in our gut than anywhere else in the body. And he gives the example in Navy SEAL training, Charlie, <clears throat> that if they're supposed to go to the right, but they have this gut feeling that that's a mistake, go to the left, they, go, they do it. They follow their gut. They're taught to follow the gut. And then the spirit, he talks about the Kokoro spirit, that in Japanese, that is the blending of the mind and body. What is your spirit? And I would say that when you were first told there's no place for you during the day, you, were, you had that fighting spirit of, I'm going to make this happen, unbeatable. Mm -hmm. And you found a way. And I'm interested in knowing more about how you've used that over the course of the years, because you've done a lot of research. You have been very active in your profession. I know that you've been president of various organizations. 
I don't recall the organization, but I remember us talking about some organization or conference you go to pretty much every year. I think you said for about 50 years. Yes. What, what organization is Population it? Association of America. It's the National Association of Demographers. And I will be going to their meeting in Chicago next month. That's great. Now, how many years have you gone to this? Uh, well over 50. Well over 50? Yes. Well over 50. Yeah. So here you are. You've already revealed your age, I'm going to say. So here you are, almost 91. Why in the world would a 91-year-old fellow get on an airplane and travel to something like that? Why are you doing that? Well, in my case, it's uh, it's a matter of staying in touch with my field. Um because most of my peers have either left the earth or uh, are no longer active. But I'm interested in the research, particularly in my areas of interest. And it's a good experience for me. But um, there's still another thing which is uh, important, and that is um, staying active in a lot of different ways. Uh, Here in the retirement community, uh, I volunteer for a lot of ac- activities, and I have my own rule that every six months I will start a new activity. And um, I like that. Why every six months? Well, that's just a kind of a, a, a rule of thumb. Uh, and uh, give you an example of the kinds of activities uh, that I've been involved in recently. Uh, one, um, as a as a teenager, I played table tennis, but all the years since, I've never played. Here at Westminster Oaks, we have a table tennis team, uh, and people mostly in their seventies and eighties, and they're very competitive. They go play in tournaments in Tallahassee and Florida at large and usually come back with gold, silver, and bronze medals. Very nice. And so they talked to me about joining the joining the team. I said, well, I haven't played since I was a teenager. <laughs> they said, that's okay. Well, I've gotten to the point where now I'm the leading 90 and over player on the team. Very good. Uh, and so that's an example of a new activity that's both physical and mental in, uh, in terms of its capacity. So let's break that down for a moment. You got the physical, the mental, and you got the social aspects. Right. And the competition makes you strive to be better. Absolutely. Instead of sitting here watching television all day. Exactly. And let me give you one other example. Um, I never in all my life uh, acted on a stage. Not even in elementary school when there were plays. I just rejected all that. Well, here at uh, Westminster Oaks, uh, a woman who is a resident who is experienced with teaching acting offered a class. She said, why don't you come to the class? And I said, oh, I can't act. (laughs) She said, well, just come to the class and sit in it. When I came to the class, it was kind of interesting. She offered an advanced class after that, and I joined that. And the next thing you know, I was in one play and then a second play. And I'm now getting ready for a third one. And I've become an actor. Very good. At age 90. (laughs) (laughs) So when will we see you on Broadway? (laughs) 
not quite Broadway, but uh, <laughs> this is another example. Um, it, it's physical, it's mental, and it's social, as you pointed out. Yes. Yes. And a sense of accomplishment, personally. Yes. On the individual side. Yes. You're doing something. And it's not that I have those skills necessarily, but people are willing to to let me uh, uh, present those skills that I have. I love it. I love it. Let's switch gears for a moment. And I'm going to ask you to pretend you're sitting in front of an audience, standing in front of an audience, and you're giving them advice about this thing called retirement. What words of wisdom would you share? Getting ready to retire, working up to, say, five or ten years before retirement, and then going into this thing called retirement and after. What are your thoughts? Well, the first thing I would say is that if you're going to retire from your work situation, don't think of uh, that kind of retirement as being near the end of your life. <laughs> Uh, that you uh, are still have to be very active beyond that point. Well, I would say first, try to extend your work life as long as possible. Uh, because first of all, it would be remunerative, and, uh, and secondly, uh, it would build up a, a lot of experience that, that would uh, be good for you in your later years. But um, uh, apart from the, the work experience, uh, I think... Once you retire, you have to adapt, adopt a, a set of activities that will keep you going, uh, that will uh, keep you alert, uh, that will uh, allow you perhaps to develop some new skills. And because there's increasingly, with life expectancy going up, there are more years after work that we have to live, and we can't just be vegetables Yes. We have to be active. How old were you when you retired from Florida State? Uh, I was approaching 70. Approaching 70. Why did you work beyond, quote, normal retirement age of 65? You could have retired. Yes. But actually, I know that you had the resources. Well, I was still uh, involved in research projects, still involved in teaching, and I didn't dislike it. Uh, so... Uh, and I thought there were, I understood there were benefits, for example, for Social Security to continue working to 70. Right. I get an increased benefit and also in my pension from the state of Florida. Correct. So that was to my benefit as well. Yeah. Good. So you had the benefit of having the salary up until retirement and you increased your benefits later in life. So yes. We would call that delayed gratification. Absolutely. But at the same time, you were still contributing right up until the day you retired. It's not like you were coasting. You were enjoying yourself and working. Yes, that's true. Was it difficult for you to walk away from this thing you created and retire? It had to be somewhat difficult. Well, the fact of the matter is I haven't walked away from it. Oh, okay. <laughs> so the truth is coming out. Huh? You're still working. <laughs> uh, I still have an office at the university, for okay. example. Okay. Uh and uh, here it is. Uh, I mean, I retired in 1995, the end of 1995. Uh, I still have an office because I'm still doing at least a small amount of academic research. And I give occasional guest lectures. And um, my colleagues 
like to have me around every once in a while. Nice. And so I go to their staff meetings uh, once a month. And uh, it's good for me, and I suppose it's good for them as well. That's great. Yeah. That's great. So what I'm taking from that, the last few minutes there, is you're still contributing. It's good for you. It's good for the younger folks that are around you. So everybody's winning. It keeps you active, keeps you bright, and you have the social engagement that you want. That's true, and it's not just the university. For example, we're sitting at a table here, and you notice that there is a lot of pieces of paper on there. And a lot of books. And a lot of books. And what that represents is that I've just uh, completed a survey of residents at this retirement village uh, that has to do with the extent to which they've experienced falling maybe injuring themselves and maybe not, and what some of the factors were that may have contributed to it. And this is a study. We've just collected all the survey forms, and I'm doing the survey itself and the analysis, and I'll write a report, which is something that maybe I could have done at the university, but now I'm doing outside of the university in my own retirement village. And I enjoy doing it. Well, we were talking uh, earlier on the one hand, you've retired from, quote, going to, to the office every day, but you haven't really retired. You're still doing the things you enjoy doing. Cut, cut back in my time, but not retired. I like to ask people this question. What does retirement look like to you? What is your vision of retirement? And I keep three books on my bookcase facing out. One is Kirk Douglas's book, Life Could Be First. We share the same birthday. December 9th, he turned 100, and I was 64. <laughs> and I have George Burns' book, 100 Years, 100 Memories. Yes. He died at age 100. 100 plus. His birthday was in January. He died in March. And I have Betty White's book. She's 95. Now, Kirk Douglas is still productive, even though he had a stroke. He's still contributing. He's still actively doing things. I'm of the opinion from the readings that I do that the people that are happiest and clients that I see that are happiest are the ones who are still doing things beyond retirement. The ones that are most miserable, Charlie, are the ones who sit around all day long watching the television, watch, listen to the talking heads, telling them how the world's coming to an end. They are not active. They're not social. They've become recluses. They are the most miserable people that I engage with. They're just not happy. The people that have friends, they're socially involved, they're dynamic. And it and it doesn't matter if you're 70 or if you're 90 or like my client who's 100. I mean, she's still driving. She won't drive at night, but she's still driving during the day. So it just blows my mind to see people that are in their 30s or 40s that act like they have no energy then I'm around you, and every time I see you, I have to remind myself of your age because you look 20 years younger because you take care of yourself. Now, I know genetic supplies in there somewhere, but you make the conscious choice to get up and go work out at the gym here every day. You make the choice of eating properly. So it's not, it's not just genetics. You have to also modify your behavior, and you've managed that. And I think another important point 
as you think of the people that you deal with in your profession, is that uh, you don't have to be regarded as successful, or your your peers don't have to regard you as successful in your in your work uh, to carry on beyond. I think uh, you know what is success is is a fluid kind of uh, concern, but you have to uh, think about your health and your ability to live a long life. And being active in various ways is something anybody can do. You may have special interests that aren't uh, related to your work career at all. Uh, if you, Some people uh, are runners, some people are walkers, some people go to the uh, gymnasium, premier health, uh, to keep up their activities. Some people have all kinds of uh, projects of their own that may not concern outsiders, but engage their physical and mental uh, health. I agree with that. And over the years, I have redefined what success means. When I was younger, I was chasing this rabbit. I've got to do this to please these people, do this to be viewed as successful. Now, my definition of success is doing the things that I want to do with the people I want to do it with when I want to do it. For me, Monday and Wednesday nights for two hours, I do kickboxing for an hour and a style of uh, Israeli fighting called Haganah for an hour. And I do that with my son. So we're doing stuff together. So we have that bonding for a 64-year-old father and a 33-year-old son. We have the social interaction with the other people in the class and the instructor. We then talk about it. So we're, we're doing it to learn from the standpoint of the physical fitness, but the mental development is there. And our son was involved in a car accident four and a half years ago, had some head injuries, some brain damage. And to see what has happened, Charlie, with the physical and mental development because of being physically active, today he's, he's totally functional. He can take care of himself. We were having trouble with his concentration and focus for a while. He's overcome that big time. He's excited. He's happy. He's, he's more fun to be around. And we're doing these things together. So it's not just about work, 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 so I can get to some magic age and retire. It's not that at all. I think we should build in retirement along the way. Take some time off, go do some things. Take a Friday afternoon off and have a glass of wine and talk to a friend. Do the things you enjoy doing. Uh, I like taking long walks in the woods myself. I love that. Hour, two hour walk, hiking with the Boy Scouts and Cub Scouts, I enjoy that. We need to close this for in a moment here, but what, what, what would you say to the person listening to this that says, you know what, I don't like my job. You're lucky because you loved your job. But the person who is sitting there going, I don't really like my job. I'm okay with it. Or even the person says, I hate going to work every day. Any, any thoughts for that person so that they could get better prepared for retirement and, and be able to walk out the door at some point and enjoy life? Well, if you really don't enjoy what you're doing, you should look for other opportunities, I think. Uh, you know, the years I worked at the Census Bureau were 
rewarding in some ways, but not in other ways. And that's what led me to a university career. And so you have to be willing to make changes if the opportunities presented them, themselves. And um, uh, but uh, if if uh, if a career is rewarding uh, in enough ways, um, you may have to stick with it until retirement. Um, but I think our, our economy is uh, such that one can move from one sector to another pretty easily if you've got the training and the skills to to make the move. And um, but if you're unhappy in a job, it's better that you you look at other opportunities. I agree with that. And if you don't have the training and the knowledge, it's okay to start working on that. You can go to the library, you can go to oh, yeah. the internet nowadays, you can just sit at your house and read and study. I have to tell you, in my world, I'm amazed at the number of people who do not take advantage of the opportunities to improve themselves. So it comes back to what you said earlier about you have to make the decision to improve. You have to make the decision to get on that subway at night and go back into town to take that class. And it might not only be a question of formal education, it might be a question of taking a particular course in some subject that would give you additional skills in your job that will help you to advance yes. in your profession. Yes. I remember reading an interview you did <clears throat> with someone about your experience in World War II. Uh, and I seem to remember your parents never went to college. They worked in the business world. My parents never got out of elementary school. Okay. <laughs> no, I'd forgotten that. So, so yeah. they did not get out of elementary school. So what do you think caused you to aspire to pursue the education you have. I know you're very low-key, you don't want to be called Dr. Nam, but you are a PhD. But you you had some drive to pursue the BS, master's, PhD. What do you think was the difference? What, what was the drive? Well, at the time I was a child, not a lot of people went to college. It was still, it was very different from today. Yes. And my parents, who had elementary school education, would like to have uh, their children finish high school. That was their goal. Get through high school. Today, and then that, get would a be, job? that would be considered ludicrous. Yeah, get a job. Yeah. Today, that would be considered ludicrous in a way because right. we think of college all the time as the ultimate goal. Um, well, I... My oldest sister, and I have a younger sister as well, we all finished high school. My oldest sister went on and got a two-year college education, a community college education, let's say. So she, uh, that, that kind of motivated me some. Um, but to be honest, I really thought that if World War II hadn't come along, I would have finished high school and taken a job maybe as a shoe salesman or something of the sort. Right. And uh, so the opportunity that came from the GI Bill uh, was important for me. Uh, and, and another factor was that I had cousins, uh, sons of an older uh, sister of my mother's who uh, went on to college. And that was kind of an incentive for us to consider further education.
Very good. So a bit of a role model. Yeah. Before we go, would you please share the story about how you ended up going to Harvard because of the Army program? You told me this on the honor flight, and I, I, I still chuckle about this. Would you share that? Well, I finished high school and um, just uh, two months after my uh, 17th birthday. And um, the war, World War II was raging at the time. People were getting drafted. And uh, I knew that in due time I would be subject to the draft. But I thought, well, I still had most of a year to go before I could would get drafted. So I went and took a couple of courses at a mechanic of mechanical drafting at Delahanty Institute in New York, thinking that this would give me an opportunity to work in one of the defense industries, um, like Grumman and had a, uh, a factory out in, uh, in my area. And uh, I took these two courses, but I couldn't get the job because when I went for interviews, they said, oh, you're going to be drafted very soon. We can't <laughs> hire you. Um, so I went down to um, a re army recruiting station just to get some information. And I said, look, I, you know, I'm not yet 18. Uh, I can't get in the army. I could get in the Navy at 17, but I wasn't interested in the Navy at the time. And they said, um, well, uh, we could put you in the Army Reserve, and when you're 18, we would make you active. And then they said, but one other thing, we have a new program we just started nationally where we take 17-year-olds who score well on a test and um, put them in a university to get training that would be useful to the army. They said, would you be interested in taking a test? Well, first they asked, how were your grades in school? I said, fairly good. Uh, and then the test, well, I said, sure, well, what have I got to lose? I took the test, and a few weeks later, I got a letter from the army saying, uh, you please report to Harvard University <laughs> for the fall term. That's funny. And so in uh, August of uh, 1943, uh, uh, at, at age 18, I was starting my year at, first year at Harvard. Uh, I was there for one year or two semesters, and um, the military situation in Europe got... Uh, very bad, and they stopped all those programs and put us into active duty. And eventually, I got overseas. But I was in combat when I was still eighteen. So, wow. Well, first of all, thank you for your service to our country. Thank you for being such a good friend and a mentor and inspiration to me all these years. And uh, Dr. Charles Nam, thank you for taking the time today. I appreciate you so much. Thank you. 
If you would like to know more about John Curry services, you can request a complimentary information package by visiting johnhcurry.com slash podcast. Again, that is johnhcurry.com slash podcast. Or you can call his office at 850-562-3000. Again, that is 850-562-3000. John H. Curry, Chartered Life Underwriter, Charter Financial Consultant, Accredited Estate Planner, Master's in Science and Financial Services, Certified in Long-Term Care, Registered Representative and Financial Advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC. Securities products and services and advisory services are offered through Park Avenue Securities, a registered broker-dealer and investment advisor. Park Avenue Securities is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. North Florida Financial Corporation is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Park Avenue Securities. Park Avenue Securities is a member of FINRA and SIPC. This material is intended for general public use. By providing this material, we are not undertaking to provide investment advice for any specific individual or situation or to otherwise act in a fiduciary capacity. Please contact one of our financial professionals for guidance and information specific to your individual situation. All investments contain risk and may lose value. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. Guardian and subsidiaries, agents, or employees do not provide legal, tax, or accounting advice. Please consult with your attorney, accountant, and or tax advisor for advice concerning your particular circumstances. Not affiliated with the Florida Retirement System, the Living Balance Sheet, and the Living Balance Sheet logo are registered service marks of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, New York, New York, copyright 2005 to 2020. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by Park Avenue Securities or Guardian and opinions stated are their own. 2020-96613 expires March 2022.